Um, we are in Ephesians 4, uh, beginning in verse 1. And uh, as we get started, um, curious, I, I just want to make sure we're all kind of at least in the same spot to begin with. Is it safe to say that there's at least some type of shared understanding of the importance of physical health? Yes? Being physically healthy has an impact on the things we do every day, right? Now, um, I imagine that in this room, there's a variety of standards on what it looks like to be healthy. And that's okay. Um, the Apostle Paul said that training, physical training, was of some value. So even the Apostle Paul had a standard. Now, in context, he was dealing with those that um, maybe had been placing too much emphasis on physical health, but he was making it clear that there was some value. And each one here may value it differently for different reasons. Personally, I see health as a grace given by God to our family. When I mean health, I don't mean good health or bad health, but health as a grace given. We are not without challenge, but it has a kingdom purpose. And despite the challenges we face, we try to use those for kingdom purposes. Time together as a result of some of the challenges we face provide opportunities for my relationship with my children to grow deeper. And I'm grateful for those opportunities. See, I see the condition of the tent that the Lord has provided us as important in the spiritual life of our family. But Paul in Ephesians describes a different body, one that is even more important than our physical bodies, and that's the body of Christ. Paul instructs us in this letter in chapter 4 in particular that the spiritual health of the body, and I would say this body, our congregation, and the body of Christ as a whole is more important than even the health of our physical bodies. We should be most interested in our spiritual condition. Individually and as a body. See, when we consider the truths of this passage, it becomes clear that our ability to stand firm in our faith is what's in view and it's connected to the health of our existence. The healthier we are spiritually, the better positioned we are to stand firm. It's different from physical health where there's inconsistent standards or everybody has a different value because God has a standard of what spiritual health looks like. And so 
uh, as we grow, um, Paul is going to point out in this passage what it looks like to walk as one, to walk as a healthy body of Christ. That's what this morning is about. And my prayer is that you leave here encouraged, that you leave here able to stand firm in your faith, to live out your faith, to practically and visibly resist the attacks of the enemy, that you leave here committed to walk as one, committed to be spiritually healthy individually and corporately. So if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Ephesians 4 um, and follow along with me as I read. I, therefore, we didn't get very far. What is the therefore? What's Paul referring to? What is so important to Paul that he's about to embark on an exhortation to implore the Ephesian church and us to do something? What is it? Well, in reading and rereading this letter and rereading this letter, I believe that what's important is spawned by or stems from or follows from the truth that immediately precedes it in 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think... So Paul understands that because God is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or even think, therefore, Christ's followers are to be characterized by something. And what we're going to see is that the something is actually what's found in verse 17 above that we are rooted and grounded in love. That's what it's there for. See, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be rooted and grounded in love on account of who God is. And on account of who God is, Paul, in praying this, expects, he expects that God, in fact, will root followers of Jesus in the love of Christ And he will ground followers of Jesus in the love of Christ. That's his expectation. That we will be rooted and grounded in love. He's able to do far more abundantly we can even ask or think. And therefore, something is going to result. That's the confidence. Because God is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. Certain changes will take place. God's the same. God hasn't changed. And that means God is still able today to do far more than we can think or ask. Not just then, still today. And because God is God, we too can be characterized, rooted, and grounded in love. We can be healthy as a congregation. And so Paul through the next part of this chapter is going to describe three characteristics of spiritual health within the church. 
not individually, but within the church that demonstrates this love, what it means to look like congregationally as rooted and grounded in love. It demonstrates that the love of Christ is indeed living and acting and active in us. So let's take a look at these three characteristics back in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, according to verses 1 through 6, a spiritually healthy church demonstrates love that is actively unified. Actively unified. See, from the outset, Paul begs the follower of Jesus who are in Ephesus to walk. Walking requires some effort. He doesn't say, hey, I beg you to take a seat. I beg you to remain idle. I beg you or I urge you to do nothing. Because you've already been united in Christ, you don't have to do anything. I urge you to do something. Take a step or two. Act. Specifically, walk means to conduct your life in a way, as it says here, that's worthy of your calling. Friends, this is huge. If you recall when we started out the walk through Ephesians, I had shared with you that as I read and read, I envisioned Paul sitting in this dungeon, right? He's imprisoned in Rome, attached to a Roman soldier. And he's thinking back on why he's there. And he remembers the fact that he was called by God. That he's amazed that God would call him kind of one of the preeminent persecutors of Christians to in fact be a sharer of the gospel. And he's thinking back saying, that's my call. And he applies this same calling now to all believers it says that those who have been called in verse 3 of chapter 1 are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So now we who have been called by God out of darkness 
have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, are being urged, are being begged, are being implored to live a life worthy of that calling. Friends, Paul isn't speaking as a motivational speaker who's seeking to gain something by trying to get you to do something. Paul is a living testimony of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling because he sacrificed all. He says he's a prisoner for the Lord. Now, despite the circumstances that Paul finds himself in, Paul doesn't identify as a prisoner in Rome or a prisoner of Caesar. He identifies as a prisoner for the Lord. A prisoner for Christ who's there because he was a Christ follower. And so those who have placed their faith and trust in him, in a sense, are in the same position. How many here struggle from time to time with sin? How many feel like at times you're being pursued by those things that you wish weren't pursuing you or hindered by those things that you wish didn't hinder you? Friends, if you weren't called by God, you wouldn't experience that. The fact that you feel that tug that says, I, 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 That was Greek, by the way. <laughs> Is an indication that the Lord has transformed your heart and you are His. And in that you should rejoice as Paul rejoices. The creator of the universe before the foundation of the world determined that you would be His. And therefore you are unified in Christ, and you are to be actively unified, walking in accordance with that calling as you live day to day. We each share a unique, though common, expression of His grace, and therefore we're called to walk as brothers and sisters, heirs to the kingdom, day by day. Now, sometimes in Scripture, you find Paul making statements and then you're wondering, what is he talking about? And then there's other times in scripture that you realize that it's three, four, five chapters later that he finally describes what he was talking about. And that's frustrating. I like it like right in front of me. And thankfully, this passage is fairly simple. It's right in front of us because Paul goes on immediately to describe what it means to walk worthy of the calling. And, and if you read it over and over, I, I said, how can I make this the most succinct? And here you go. This is what it means to walk worthy. Walk like Jesus. Let our lives reflect the one who called us. 
We're to walk as one. More specifically, we're to walk as the one to whom all praises do. Did you hear how Paul describes it? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Friends, there's no one who more perfectly demonstrated those characteristics than Jesus himself. So let's take a look at these more specifically to help us understand what it looks like to be actively unified. Humility. Jesus was the greatest example of humility. Philippians 2 verse 6 says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It means to be actively unified, we must strive to be selfless. Earlier in that chapter to the Philippians, Paul described humility even more specifically. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection from sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Friends, that's radically different than the way culture bombards us today. I was thinking about some of the ad slogans that I grew up with. You deserve a break today. Have it your way. Or pamper yourself. Spoil yourself. Take time for you. Or the best one, L'Oreal, because you're worth it. This is the problem. We often only think of ourselves. We're encouraged day by day to only think of ourselves. Now, being in the marketing world, I know that it may be intentional, it may be unintentional. But if we put it biblically, these advertisers are encouraging you to be prideful. They're they're finding different ways of using different words and different phrases to encourage you that pride is acceptable. Paul said that humility is considering others more important than ourselves. Imagine that slogan for McDonald's. Hey, you don't deserve a break today. <laughs> L'Oreal, yeah, you're not worth it. <laughs> not going to sell much. 
Tim Keller once said, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. Gospel humility is thinking of myself less. See, when it comes to humility, Christ depicted it most perfectly. And when it comes to gentleness, the second characteristic you see here, think of Jesus in Matthew 11. Jesus himself describes himself as gentle and lowly. You might be thinking, uh, yeah, but I'm pretty sure that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Yes. But if it's a fruit of the Spirit, and I'm not very gentle, then He's to blame for not giving it to me. No. <laughs> See, we're exhorted in Galatians 6.1 that we are to care for one another in gentleness. We are to be actively unified, actively pursuing the characteristics of Christ, intentionally growing in those things. Christ was humble. Christ was gentle. Well, what about patience? Anyone here ever prayed, Lord, give me patience and hurry? <laughs> now, have you ever considered how a lack of patience is both a lack of humility and a lack of love? It's not necessarily the way that we think about being impatient. Like you don't think about, okay, so um, I'm struggling with patience with my children and therefore I'm being prideful and I'm not being unloving. Well, it's because I deserved a break today and they're infringing upon my rights. So therefore I have every right to be impatient with them. But in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul described love first as what? Patient. So how do we avoid being filled with pride and being unloving? How do we actively pursue patience, bearing with one another in love? Well, it means that we're willing to endure annoying challenges over extended periods of time. How? We meditate on the patience and long-suffering that Christ demonstrated toward us personally. That's how we do it. Remember Peter? Like Peter is my favorite of the apostles just because he speaks before he thinks. Peter denied the Lord three times. Shortly after telling the Lord, no, I'm going to die for you. He was confident. Who wrote, love covers 
a multitude of sins. See, Peter personally experienced the long-sufferingness of Jesus as Christ had breakfast ready over a fire of coals after he rose again. Peter knew exactly what he was writing when he said love covers a multitude of sins because he remembered what it was like to deny the Savior. If we remember what it was like to deny the Savior, patience begins to flow. When we remember his long sufferingness with us, we can be long suffering toward others around us. We actively pursue patience, and look in your text, bearing with one another in love when. We are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the specific phrase here. It's easy to miss. It's easy to overlook. We are to maintain the unity, not create it. What do you mean? Well, We are united in Christ at the moment God called us. We're already united to other believers. We don't have to create that. We don't do that. It was done on our behalf. See, we are to intentionally strive, eager to maintain, to be actively unified by the Spirit's help. See, it means that we renounce the tendency to be self-centered and walk in humility. It means that we abandon our own agendas to exhibit patience towards those around us. When we understand that we are united in Christ, that we've already been unified, we set aside utopian expectations of others that we've placed on them to walk in forbearing love. See, when we do this, When we renounce those things and set those things aside, then we are actively unified as we live as one body resembling the one who called us to himself. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, so how does that apply to me? Friends, what Paul's talking about right there in the little phrase is Christian fellowship. Somebody asks you, what's fellowship? Here's your definition. As a body, as friends, in relationship, we demonstrate humility and gentleness and patience. We bear with one another in love and we're eager to maintain the unity that was the result of God calling us to himself. That's fellowship. When we are actively unified, when we walk as one, here's the result. We are protected. 
might say protected from what? From the world. When we're in relationship with one another, when we're doing these things, it means we actively have one another's back. When someone says something, we're not wondering, well, what were they really thinking? Or what did they mean by that? We extend charity and say, well, I don't think they meant the way that I heard it. How many of you have ever said something and it was taken out of context? Anybody? If you haven't, it means you're not talking. And given the fact it can take us 15 minutes to even get started, y'all know how to talk. But is it easier to assume the worst or the best? So when I look at this, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, it would seem that we're called to always start with the best and ask clarifying questions to understand, hey, I think I misheard you or I think I misunderstood what you said. See, we're better off when we do these things. We're better off as we're in Christian fellowship because we get to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Now, if you're sitting here and you think that sanctification happens because you read your Bible, it can, but I promise you it's not going to be to the same degree that it happens when you're in relationship with others. See, I am better off because my bride is my primary means of sanctification. I am better off because Randy or Marcus or Jason bring something to my attention that I was unaware of. Anybody here feel like they walk around the world sometimes with blinders on? Anybody? And if you don't feel that way, you have blinders on. See, we like to use the phrase, iron sharpens iron. Because it sounds good. But sometimes when push comes to shove, when rubber meets the road, we really don't want iron and iron. We kind of want plastic and plastic. It looks right, but it's not actually cutting anything. You don't sharpen plastic with plastic. See, our goal in fellowship is to build one another up, to encourage others to stand firm in their faith, to bear one another's burdens in the context of when they may be walking astray. The writer of Hebrews says we're to stir one another up, not neglecting to meet. We're encouraged to gather as a congregation, not just on the Lord's day, but as opportunities present themselves. See, I found it difficult and challenging 
to grow in relationship, to intentionally and personally encourage others if I'm never with them. And I know I can't be with everybody in this room, but there's enough people in this room to be with someone in this room. There's not enough elders to be with everybody in this room individually. There's just not. But there's enough people in this room to be with someone in this room. And who is Paul talking about from a calling perspective? Just Paul? Or all of us? All of us. See, what comes to mind is the band of brothers of sorts as depicted in the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, for those who don't like the Lord of the Rings, Jason will forgive you. And I'll get to a different illustration afterwards. But for those who have a familiarity with the Lord of the Rings, think about it. Here you have a group of men. Well, a group of male things. You have a couple of hobbits. You've got a dwarf. You've got an elf. You've got a couple of men. And you have a wizard. Who actively, intentionally choose to take on a common purpose. They're unified on a mission together and they decide collectively to get behind this young hobbit who's not experienced in battle, who's courageously taking on the world around him because he believes and he's been told he's called to do so. Anybody here called to do something? All of us. Thank you. Anybody here not necessarily experienced in battle? Anybody here courageously attempting to take on the world around them, but outnumbered? Anybody here need the help of others. See, that band of brothers sure seems like a reflection of what Christian fellowship ought to look like. Willing to lay down one's life for one another. Now, if you find it difficult to relate to the Lord of the Rings... Here's how God's word describes this same togetherness. Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Friends, that's fellowship. That's what Paul's describing here in Ephesians 4 one of the reasons why our gathering together on Sundays is important to us as elders. We see it as the primary context for the equipping of the saints, the ministry of the word, the corporate adoration of the Savior. It's a shared experience and a place to connect with one another because fellowship stems from being unified in Christ, sharing a common mission and a common calling. 
called by Christ individually, built into by Christ corporately. Also means it's important for us as elders that fellowship. Fellowship here is biblical. But fellowship alone in care groups or just in a gathering of the saints, maybe on a, on a Tuesday morning or on a Friday afternoon or on a ski hill, does not replace the gathering of the saints on a Sunday. It cannot. See, this is the primary context because we're actively unified as a local church. It's tied to being led through scripture together as a corporate body because it helps our confession be unified. We're to walk as one. When we gather collectively and learn collectively, we're better able to walk as one. And then Paul goes on to share a series of seven ones. He says that we are to be one body. Which means we share a common experience as a true church. Rooted and grounded in the Christ Jesus. It says one spirit. It's by the spirit that we are called into the one body and maintained in the body. We are called to the one hope. See, before we were rescued from the domain of darkness, remember 2.12 says that we were without God and without hope in this world. But now we have the one hope. In Christ, we share a common hope. And therefore, should live in a manner worthy of our calling. It says, just as you were called to the one hope. That belongs to your call. Our hope belongs to our call. It says our hope is in the one Lord Jesus Christ. For us. There's little angst in saying that there's one Lord Jesus Christ. But for the church at this time saying that there is one Lord Jesus Christ. Was actually saying that. Caesar is not Lord. Anybody know the penalty for saying Caesar is not Lord? No more. Talk about a confession of the faith to recite this. To be actively unified is being rooted in one faith, meaning we embrace the essential truths of the faith together. And it plays out in the experience of one baptism, knowing that we are baptized spiritually into Christ, being united with him. We identify with his death and his resurrection, and therefore we affirm together as brothers and sisters that there is one God and Father. He's our Father, we are his adopted children. And if you went back and read that again, you notice just as last week that there is a Trinitarian view of the spiritual calling. One pastor put it this way, and I quote, the triune God not only creates unity, we have as believers, and affects 
unity, but also serves as the ultimate picture of unity. See, God creates the experience of unity. He provides an example of it and he strengthens us to maintain it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's six verses. The next two go quickly. Second characteristic that we see of what it means to be healthy as a body is that we recognize diversity. In this passage, diversity is recognized. It's not about forming a diversity council and intentionally trying to broaden our ethnic diversity within the congregation. That's not what he's talking about. We are to celebrate and recognize God's grace as he creates spiritual diversity in gifting among his people. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What believers are in view here? Every believer? Which believers are in view? Every believer. Which believers? All, every. Every believer's in view. We're talking about he gave gifts to them. Every believer has received, in Paul's words, a grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. This grace is given to serve and build up the body. That's why it's given. It's to actively unify and maintain the unity of the saints. That's why gifts are given. There's a number of places in Scripture where gifts are given. If you look at this one and compare it with the others, there's a unique Christ-centeredness to all the rest. Here we see that Christ died, rose, ascended into heaven, and it's according to that authority, the authority over death, that he gives gifts to his people. So therefore, if we're to walk as the one who called us out of darkness, and Jesus is portrayed as being a giver of gifts, then we too are to give the gifts we've been given. The gifts we've been given are not for ourselves, but for the edification of others. This diversity of gifts plays out into diversity of responsibilities. He gives gifts to leaders and members of the church. Do you see them both here? See, both groups have the same value, the same calling, but they have different roles. Any basketball fans in the room? Couple? Not many. That's sad. Well, in basketball, you need guards and forwards and a center to be successful. Any football fans? 
wow, the same people. <laughs> Are the rest of you just not sports fans? No, we got no sports fans over there. Um, I'll work on a different illustration. But in football, how many of you have ever seen a nose tackle also play quarterback? <laughs> Once or twice. That's a really, really small percentage. See, we need one another. Some encourage, some teach. Some demonstrate exceptional hospitality. Some administer well. What we see here is that leaders are called to equip the saints. There's some who are particularly gifted in teaching God's word. Some gifted in communicating the gospel. Others shepherding the people. Leaders are intentionally to invest the gifts they've been given so that the saints are equipped, prepared, trained, encouraged, and you can go on and on. But there's another group here. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Well, who's supposed to build up the body of Christ? Anybody? The saints, right? That is the specific role of the saints is to build up the body of Christ. See, the saints are gifted in ways that they're able to actively and practically minister to people. Question for y'all. Does God work in mysterious ways? Does God ever stop working? No. And are we supposed to imitate God? We require rest, but I think it's safe to say that we're also called to work. Therefore, we're to walk as one by working, by serving, by ministering to one another. Members are the contributors and the participants in the work of the ministry. And each of us is to be involved in ministry because God saved us for the purpose and gave us gifts for the purpose of building up and edifying the saints. Practical question then, in what ways are you using the gifts God's given you for the good of the body? Believe it's a fair question. Now I'm going to be direct and I know that's going to surprise some. But I hope it's heard with gentleness. If you find yourself thinking, I'm really not gifted. Or I'm really not that gifted. You've missed the point. Or, if you look around and say there's plenty of others with a similar gift, so therefore I'm off the hook, I'm not needed here. You've also missed the point. Because for that to be true, that either you're not gifted or your gifts are not supposed to be used, that would require either that scripture is wrong or that God somehow made a mistake. Neither of those scenarios are true. So that means every Christ follower is gifted for the purpose of edifying the saints. We all are given different gifts 
And it's through the using of them that we attain the unity of the faith. There's a last characteristic that's uncovered here. What a healthy congregation looks like. Says that our health as a follower of Jesus and as a church is demonstrated by growing maturity. Well, how do we know if we're growing in maturity? How do we know? How can we assess ourselves if year in, year out, we're growing in the Lord? And Paul's going to give us four ways that we know, beginning in verse 13. So, we're given these gifts for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Before we even look at what it looks like to to, to be mature, Do you not see how the body is connected together? And then Paul makes it clear. He says growing maturity means that we resemble Christ more and more. Verse 13 says it's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ's fullness is completion. When our faith has been perfected, then we know we will have arrived. Anybody arrived so far? No, that was a quick no. See, we should desire that the character traits that we've already discussed actually become more and more present in our lives. And that's actually how the body helps us because we can ask. Ask a brother or sister, am I more patient now than I was a year ago? Now that's a frightening question for some. But it's the right question. Second, growing maturity requires that we persistently stand firm on God's word. Both our intellectual understanding, it says the unity of the faith... And our heart understanding, the knowledge, the actual experience of the Son of God, which is the way we demonstrate our rootedness, should be growing. And as a result of that growing, verse 14 says, so that we're no longer tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Are we likely to pursue something that's unbiblical? Hopefully less and less. Growing maturity also means that our being rooted and grounded in love demonstrates itself, finds its expression in the way we're able to present the truth to others. Verse 15 is really interesting. In the English, it's translated as speaking the truth in love. I've seen this done well. I've seen it done not so well. But more precisely... 
this is actually translated truthing in love. Now, truthing is not an English word. What is truthing? Well, it means that we are consistently speaking truth, maintaining truth, and doing truth in a loving Christ-like manner. That's what it means to truthing. There's your big word. You got one. Had to make up my own. Friends, I am grateful for the way this body exemplifies truthing in love. See, even when someone may come through the doors and they don't necessarily agree with our doctrinal position, I believe that they tangibly know and have experienced the love of Christ. That's what truthing in love means. Question for us. Are we known for both standing firm on God's truth and embodying love concurrently? Are we known for exemplifying both truth and love? Both should be present. And lastly, Paul indicates that growing maturity manifests itself in the way we contribute to the body according to the gifts we've been given. We're not to remain consumers. We're not to attend a particular church because of something they have to offer us or our children or because of the status that it represents. Our ultimate need is Christ, is it not? Our ultimate need is Christ. And that means we're to depend upon Him. But according to this, when you look at verse 15 through the end of 16, it also says that we are to be dependent upon one another. Both things are held in tension, friends. We are to depend on Christ. And then we're to depend upon one another who have been called unified in Christ. It's not one or the other. It's a both and. It means each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, the only way that others can depend upon you is by you being willing to use the diverse gift that you've been given for the edification of the saints. That's the only way. If you keep your gift to yourself, others cannot depend upon you. Humility and selflessness means we're willing to give to others. Friends, it's important to be concerned about physical health, but our spiritual health matters more. I want to close with Paul's exhortation to the church in Corinth. This is from his first letter to them. This is chapter 16, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. He says, friends, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. 
Act like men, be strong, be mature. Let all that you do be done in love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, your word encourages us to walk in a manner worthy of your call. That we would walk with humility and patience and gentleness. That we'd bear with one another. That we would recognize the unity that has come through you, by you, and for you. But Lord, we need your help. Our heart's natural tendency is to hold our gifts to ourselves. Our heart's natural tendency is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Our natural tendency is to exclude others. Father, I ask that this week that you would send your spirit to grant a special grace upon your body. That we would pursue one another. We would be pursuing, actively maintaining the unity of the faith. That we would be selfless with the gifts you've given us. That we would find ways to use them in ways that glorify you and build one another up. Lord, and in doing so, that those that are not called by you will be challenged, will be intrigued, will wonder what is this love? What is this that makes no sense? Lord, go before us that you may be glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen.